John chapter 17, we're going to read down through verse 27 this morning. I'm sorry, John 18. Did I say 17? My bad, John 18. Let's go ahead and read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and stuck it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and the captain and the officers and the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was, Caiaphas's, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is this how you answered the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about what is wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he's about to do for the, the trials, for the beatings, the crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. We thank you that we looking back at these passages are able to, to look back at it with, uh, with hindsight as we see what you have done for us. And we're able to, to look at it from a different perspective as those that 
were going through it at the time. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that we would, um, that we would see you, that we would see Jesus Christ, and that we would see him glorified even through uh, this tumultuous time. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, help us to change, to become more like Christ. For it's in his, his name we pray. Amen. This is a, a bit of a lengthy passage, and that's only halfway through, John 18. But um, <clears throat> it's also one that, that is a little bit more difficult to, to pull things out of. Um, you know, it's easy. We've been, you know, three, four chapters, which is about seven weeks, almost two months. We've been basically in Jesus' words, right? He's been speaking to the disciples. He's been giving them uh, instruction. He's been giving them commandments. He's been telling them, you know, this is how you need to live. This is what I want you to do because I'm not going to be with you. And we've had, we've had a, lot of, a lot of stuff to pull from because Jesus was speaking. And here we come to chapter 18, and what we have is really more of a narrative. We have a, more of a story. We have events that are going on. But as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to, to remember what it's about, or rather, who it's about. Uh, we keep bringing up the purpose of the book from John chapter 20, which is what? These things are written, why? That you might believe, right? And believe in who? In Jesus Christ. And so the focus of this story really is Jesus Christ. And even though we're going to spend some time here looking at Peter, because, I mean, we just read it. <laughs> He's in a lot of it, right? There's a lot in this passage about Peter. Really, I believe even the story of Peter here is a story of Christ. And so as we dig in this this morning, keep that in the back of your mind, and I'm going to do my best to, to kind of point those things out as we go along. But because this is more of a narrative, um, we tend to go through it more as a story. So bear with me as we, as we work through these verses. The first thing that I find interesting, you know, we, we have not much written in John about what happened in the garden. Basically, if you, if you remember verse, chapter 17, Jesus was praying to the Father, and then he says, let's go. Basically, they, they leave where they were in the, in the upper room, the Lord's Supper, and they are going out, and, and John says that they crossed the, the Valley of Kidron, and they went to this garden, and it was a place that they went often. It was a place that uh, Judas knew that they would go. It was, a, it was a habit of theirs to be there. That was one of their special places. And so Judas knew exactly where Jesus was going to go after the Passover just because he had been with him for three years. He knew, he knew what, his, what his modus operandi was. And so Judas knew he was going to be there. The disciples probably knew that they were going to be there. They probably all, I mean, it was just, it was their habit. They knew what they were doing. They were going there. And, and John really doesn't give us a whole lot of what's going on. Of course, we know from other gospels a little bit about what's going on. Um, when they get into the garden, um, Jesus asked them to do something. What did he ask them to do? Anybody remember? You can speak out loud. Pray, right? He said, watch and pray. And so he, he sets them there to go pray. And then he goes off and, and he is, is praying to the Father. And then he comes back and, and what happens? They're asleep, right? Okay, so it's, you know, I don't know what time it is, but it's, it's evening, it's nighttime, it's, they're tired, 
I mean, who knows everything that went along with, you know, preparation maybe for the Passover. They've just gone through a very emotional ride with everything that Jesus has been saying. Um, the fact that he's leaving them, he's trying to prepare them for all this, and their, their heads are probably swimming a little bit. They're probably not really understanding what's going on. They certainly don't understand that it's happening right now. And, and so they're, they're here, they're probably exhausted, which is why they fell asleep. And they fall asleep and Jesus comes back to him and says, wakes him up. And he says, you couldn't, you couldn't pray for one hour? And then, you know, watch him pray. And he goes and he, and he prays again. Of course, we, we have the, in other gospels, we have the, the prayer that Jesus is praying. When he prays to the Father, if, it's, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But John kind of skips over all of that. And that's good. And those are things that, that we need to know. But John's focusing, again, not on the minutia, but on Christ. And so they, they, John picks up the story of the garden with Judas coming with this band of armed men. And I love how John describes this group. Okay, look at this here. Um, down in verse 3. It says, Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It just, it's just interesting, that group of people. So we've got professional soldiers. We've got religious leaders slash servants of some sort. And they're all coming with lanterns and, what was it? Torches and weapons, all right? I don't know about you, but when I, when I read those words, my mind kind of goes back to the old, um, you know, Frankenstein movie, you know, where you got the, the angry villagers, they're coming up with their pitchforks and their lanterns, you know, or maybe, you know, maybe people in my generation, you know, Beauty and the Beast, where they're, you know, the villagers are coming to kill the beast and they've got, all right, no more movie references. You can't, you can't handle it. So I kind of have this picture in my mind from those things of, of this band of people, you know, and they're coming and they're armed and they're ready because they're assuming that there's going to be resistance. Why else would they be armed? The soldiers would be armed because that's part of their get up, right? That's part of their job is to be armed. But the rest of them, if they're armed, why would they be armed? Well, they're expecting resistance. This is a man that has had a warrant out from the, um, from the, the, the high priest for, for several chapters, <laughs> for some times, from before the Passover. And so it's, it was put out, that if anybody knows where he is, tell us so that we can arrest him. And so they're, they're expecting, nobody's come forward until Judas that we know of. And so they're expecting probably resistance. They know that he has followers. They know that he has uh 12 specifically, there are at least 11 now, that are, that are really close to him. And so they're probably coming with the expectation that there might be a skirmish. And so they're prepared. And I think it's really interesting that Jesus takes the initiative to go out and meet these guys. Jesus, it says that he knew what was going on and he goes out to meet them. He came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? See, Jesus here initiates the confrontation. He didn't wait for them to come and, and run into Peter or John and say, we're looking for Jesus. He comes to them. 
he comes to them and he says, who are you seeking? And that may not seem like that big of a deal because he's the leader, but what does it do? It changes, it's, it's a complete shift from what they're expecting. They're expecting to try to get to Jesus, to capture him, to arrest him. They may even expect him to run, you know, because they're, they're coming to arrest this guy and they assume he probably doesn't want to be arrested. Most normal human beings wouldn't. And so they're coming to take him into captivity and the man that they're looking for walks right up to him and says, who do you seek? And they tell him, because apparently they don't know. Of course, we do have uh, other scriptures. We know that uh, Judas pointed him out, verified it with a kiss. Um, and so there, there was multiple things going on here that John doesn't necessarily bring in. But Jesus says to them, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? I am he. And what happens? They fall down. Now, it's not clear that the use of I am necessarily caused them to fall down. I think that's an interesting thought. I don't, you may have heard that priest before. Um, I don't necessarily see that that's given to us in Scripture. Um, but it's possible that the fact that he said, I am, maybe in that statement there was a, uh, a sense of power, a sense of authority, him being God, um, that he was able to portray in that statement that caused them to be taken aback and to fall down. That's possible. I don't know that the Bible expressly tells us that. But again, I think if you think about even the circumstances, what are they expecting? They're expecting a skirmish. They're expecting resistance. And here the person they're looking for who knows that he's got a warrant out for his arrest understands that there's a bunch of people here who are armed, who are ready to take him into custody. He says, I am he. I just kind of imagine, again, maybe this is kind of my cartoon brain. I don't know. But I kind of imagine the first few people in line hearing that and being like, oh, wait, whoa, and, and then just kind of, you know, domino effect is kind of how I imagine it happening. Um, maybe, it was, maybe it was a supernatural thing. Maybe it was just a, you know, crazy thing that happened because they were taken off guard. We don't know, but, but it did happen. And it's interesting, you know, Jesus says, I am he, and I don't know about you, but if, I, if I'm a soldier and I've been trained in the art of war and all of a sudden I find myself on the ground, I'm going to be a little nervous because the ground is not the place to be if you're expecting to be attacked. And so these men, here they are, they're all on the ground. And instead of running, instead of attacking, what does Jesus do? He says, who are you looking for? <laughs> Again, the second time, who are you looking for? See, Jesus is in complete control of this situation. He's in complete control of what is going on. And, and they say, they, I can see them just kind of like helping each other up and getting up off the ground and, and being like, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little more trepidation that time, I don't know. And, uh, and Jesus says, I am he, I'm the one that you're looking for. And since I'm the one you're looking for, let these guys go. 
See, Jesus steps forward and takes control of the situation and lets them know right off the bat, I'm in charge. You're not coming here to take me. I'm going with you. And he takes control. He takes control to the point of not only initiating that original uh, confrontation, but he also takes control in the fact that he uh, creates uh, the final uh, protection that he promised the Father. Back in John 17, let's look at that. John 17, uh, I don't think I wrote the verse down. Uh, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And there are two ways that Christ has protected them. As he's praying to the Father, he says, look, I have, I have kept them, I have guarded them while they were with me, but I'm getting ready to leave. And so you need to protect them and guard them. And, and here we have, John even makes a point to say it, that this was to fulfill, verse nine, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So not only is Christ in control of the situation by taking over, by initiating the contact or the, con, the, the uh, conflict, but he's also in control of the situation because he completely provides protection just as he promised, just as he said. Not only has he provided spiritual protection for everyone, obviously, except for Judas, which he said in John chapter 17, but even physical protection. We talked about that in our small group um, a couple weeks ago, is that all the things that, 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 all the times Jesus went through and was teaching and there were, there were crowds that were angry and crowds that wanted to, to get rid of him right then, to stone him, um, all those times, none of the disciples were harmed either. And so all this time, Christ has protected them spiritually through his teaching. He's protected them physically. And now he completes that protection even here in the garden as he says, look, you're coming, you're looking for me, let these guys go. And John makes a point to bring it out and says that this is because he had promised, he had said to the Father that he had protected them. It's interesting he says, except for the one who betrayed him. Out of the 12, who was the first to die? Judas. Not that long from now. See, in, in just a few hours, Judas is going to realize what he's done. He's going to go out. He's going to hang himself. Christ has protected the 11, but not Judas. Even though the crowd didn't come to take Judas, even though Judas was with the crowd, he was still without the protection of Christ, both spiritually and physically. And so Christ secures this protection for these men because he is in control of the situation. He is sovereign. Peter, of course, you know, he's not, he's not too happy with just, you know, sitting around and, and letting these guys take his Lord. 
take his master. Um, after all, what did he just say a few chapters ago? He'd said, Lord, I will die for you, right? I'll die for you. I will, I will go to the death. I will go down swinging. I will do everything I can to make sure that you do not die. I will give my life for you. And of course, we're going to see the fulfillment of what Jesus said to him next this morning. We've already read it. And Jesus says, will you really die for me? I can't help but wonder if maybe those words were ringing in Peter's ears as he's standing there watching all of this unfold. And Jesus has initiated this conflict with, these, with this band of people. And, and now he's saying, you know what? Just take me and let these guys go. And I can just see Peter being like, uh-uh, that ain't gonna happen. And, and he whips out his sword and he swings and cuts off an ear. I don't think that was his target. I mean, it doesn't tell us that that wasn't his target, but usually if you're going to swing your sword at somebody, it's probably not going to be aimed to take their ear off. Um, and and it's, a very, it's a very memorable thing, apparently, because you know, we see later on somebody brings it up around the, around the campfire, um, obviously a relative, but, um, but Peter is just so brash, and he's so quick to just jump in and, and not take into account what God is doing. Peter is living in the moment. He's living for the now. He's living for the here. He's living for my Lord is right here and they want to take him away and I'm not going to let that happen. And so he whips out his sword and he strikes probably at the person that's closest to him and gets the guy's ear and cuts it off. Now, again, let's think about this situation. If you're a trained soldier and some guy in front of you whips out a sword and just starts swinging, what's your natural response? Take him down, right? You think of, excuse me, I think of like a Secret Service agent you know, who's protecting the president or some other official, you know, and as soon as that word gun comes up, what do they do? They tackle the president and then they tackle the person who looked like they had a gun, right? Everything, everything goes into motion like that immediately. It's part of their training. It's part of what they do. And, and a Roman soldier would be no different. They would have training. They would be ready. As soon as they see the flash of that blade, as soon as they hear that blade coming out, whatever may have triggered their their consciousness, they're going to be ready. And yet, what does Jesus do? He steps in. Here he is. He's just, given, he's just provided protection for everybody. He's just made this umbrella for the 11, and all of a sudden, Peter jumps outside of it <laughs> and says, uh-uh, we ain't doing this, and swipes at him. And I could just, I can almost see Jesus being like, Come on, Peter. <laughs> and he, he, he intervenes and he says to Peter, put your sword away. But then he, he says something else very specific. What does he say? He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
See, Jesus had the right perspective. Jesus was looking at this situation not as uh, a dangerous situation, not as uh, something that was bad or something that was you know, against him. He was looking at it as the plan of God. He was looking at it as the plan of the Father. He was seeing it and recognizing it as this is what God has for me. This is my role. This is what I am to do. I am to go with these men. And he's trying to help Peter understand, look, there's something bigger going on here. It's not just about me and these men arresting me. It's not just about this band of, this mixed band of people coming out here with their torches and their swords and their pitchforks or whatever else they had. It said, it said weapons, right? So it doesn't, it's not about them. It's about the will of the Father. He says, Peter, you need to understand this is bigger than us, than you. This is the will of the Father. How can I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And he puts Peter's perspective back where it should be. So the band of soldiers in verse 12, and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That's interesting that they bound him. You know, maybe it's just their, you know, if you arrest somebody, you put them in handcuffs, right? That's, that's part of, the, that's part of the, the process. You do that. But here's a man, well, Jesus, who has confronted them, who has taken control of this whole situation, has provided protection for the other 11, even the one that kind of went a little crazy, you know, and he's, he's put everything right. He's handled everything. There, it's all peaceful, but they bind him. And they shackle him up like a common criminal. And they take him to the high priest. Jesus, even in the arrest, was in control. As I read this passage, I can't help but think of something that Jesus said back in John chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. He said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. And even in this instance, as we view what is going on here in the garden, we see exactly what Jesus said back in John chapter 10. He's in complete control. These men didn't barge into the garden knock the disciples around and grab Jesus and throw him in handcuffs or shackles, whatever, and drag him off. That's not what happened. He's in complete control. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I give it willingly. And that's what he does here in the garden. He turns himself over to these men. They shackle him and they take him to the chief priests. Christ shows his sovereignty even in his submission. Even in his submission, he is sovereign. Now we get to the part that we all like to, you know, beat Peter up 
don't we? We like, we like to look at Peter and be like, come on, man. I mean, really? You didn't notice after two times that, you know, maybe I should just stop talking? <laughs> you know, we, we, like to, we like to beat Peter up and we like to look at him and say, you were so bold. You were so on fire in the garden. You cut a guy's ear off, crazy man. And yet here you are sneaking into the outer court and huddling around this fire, trying not to be noticed. It's interesting, uh, John mentions that there were two disciples there. In fact, one of them was known to the high priest, um, and most scholars think that it was John, just the way that John typically writes about himself. Um, he doesn't mention his name usually, and so most people think that other disciple was John. There's some other reasons I won't go into. Um, but so this other disciple goes straight in because he's known. And he's obviously known as a disciple of Christ, even in those circles. How do we know that? Well, what does the, what does the servant girl say to Peter? Because this disciple comes back out and says to the servant girl, hey, let that guy in. And so she lets Peter in. And what does she say to him? Are you also one of his disciples? So whoever this disciple was, it was clearly known that he was a disciple of Christ, even to this servant girl. The servant girl then asks a very obvious question, right? Oh, you know this guy. Are you one of his disciples too? And of course, Peter says, no. No, no, no. No, I'm, I, I, no. And he goes off and he kind of goes away, finds the fire and, and just sits there warming himself, probably trying to be inconspicuous. And you think about the time frame here. We've got the feast of the Passover, and then we've got hours in the garden, and now we're at the high priest's house. We don't know how long that took, but probably quite a bit of time, because what were they doing? They were putting him on trial. In fact, they had people coming, and they were giving false reports about Jesus and saying that he did things and, and they weren't missing. <laughs> and, and they were saying that Jesus was, was deserved to be punished and they were trying him there before he goes to Caiaphas to get tried some more, before he goes to Pilate to get tried some more. And, and you think about this time frame here, at the end of this, of, of this passage that we've read, what happened? What happened? After Peter talked. It's an animal. Rooster crow, there we go. All right, so the rooster crows. When does that happen? In the morning. Anybody ever stayed up all night long recently? I'm not talking about college where everything was caffeine. I'm talking like now, in your 30s, 40s, upwards, you know? Yeah, how'd that go for you? Not good, not good. all right? I've done that many more times than I'd like to admit um, on projects that, you know, programming is not, not always fun. Uh, <laughs> projects that don't quite seem to work. And, uh, and it's, it's rough, man. You get to three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, your brain just doesn't work the same way as it did at one o'clock in the morning, let alone at 10 o'clock in the, in, at night, you know? It just doesn't work as well. And I don't care how much caffeine you have, at least in my case, 
It's not going to help. And so here we are. We look ahead and we see the end of this passage, the roosters crowed. So we've gone from all day, probably preparing for the Passover, eating the Passover, an emotional roller coaster during the Passover and after the Passover, going to the garden, get a quick cat nap when they're supposed to be praying. And then we've got all this hullabaloo with the crowd that comes to the garden to take Jesus. And then there's the sneaking and the following and the, and the hiding in the courtyard and, and waiting and waiting and waiting for things to go on. Peter's probably tired. You know, it's easy to, to read through these passages and not feel what they're going through. It's easy to read through these passages and just look at them and be like, man, you guys are dumb. You know, we look, at, we look at the Israelites and how many times Jesus says to them, believe in me, I am the, tr- I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the, the resurrection and the life. All these I am's that Jesus gave to them, the way that he lived, the miracles that he did. That's why John said, these miracles are written that you would believe, right? Jesus was there. He was in front of them. And so many times they just didn't believe. They just didn't believe. And it's easy for us to look at the crowds and be like, man, you guys are just dumb. If Jesus were in front of us, I'd believe, we think. And it's easy for us to look down on these characters in Scripture. And Peter especially, he's an easy target. And look at him and say, how in the world could you deny Christ? So bold in the upper room, so bold in the garden, but yet around a campfire, you deny him. But I think when you think about, you put yourself in his shoes, and I won't go into this a whole lot of detail because it's part of the discussion question, but put yourself in Peter's shoes. What is he going through? I'm not making excuses for Peter. What he did was wrong. He shouldn't have denied Christ. But put yourself in his shoes before you judge. Would you have denied Christ? I'd tell you one thing. If Jesus had said that you would deny him, you would deny him. See, Peter, it's easy to bag on Peter and be like, man, you're terrible. And it's easy to kind of lose the focus of even this passage as we get to this story of Peter. This story is in every gospel. Every single one of the gospel writers mention this story, mention Peter denying Christ. It's that big of an issue. It's that big of a, of a thing. But is it that big because Peter did it? I would submit to you that it's that big because Jesus predicted it. See here, even in Peter's failure, Jesus Christ's sovereignty is displayed. Even in Peter's denial, Jesus Christ is still glorified. Because in Peter's denial, what Jesus said came to pass. His prophecy was true. In just a matter of hours. And of course, we know from other Gospels that Peter remembered what Jesus had said. We know that he went out and he wept. One place says, wept bitterly. 
as he remembers what Jesus had said. But yet, even in this failure, Christ is glorified because his sovereignty is shown through the fact that what he said would happen, happened. See, even through this dark and narrative passage, we can see the glory and the sovereignty and the power and the knowledge of Christ. Even in these passages where it looks like the devil has won, of course, we look back knowing that he hasn't. But even in these times where it looks bleak, and maybe it's even passages that you don't really like to read because you don't like to think about it. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a very visual person. You know, that's why movies work for me. You know, I'm a very visual person. So when I read books or when I read the scripture, my mind thinks about it. My mind imagines what's going on. And so I have a hard time reading certain things. I have a hard time reading some things about the crucifixion because I imagine it. And it's a horrific thing. And this whole process of being tried as the perfect son of God, never having done anything wrong, being lied about and being blasphemed and being tried as a common sinner. And being paraded out from one court to another court to another court over this process of hours. It's easy to kind of get a little discouraged when you read through these parts of Scripture if we don't have the right perspective. See, even in this narrative, even in this Scripture that seems a little on the downside, Jesus Christ is still glorified because his sovereignty is still shown. His sovereignty, sovereignty is shown in his, the way he initiated the confrontation. His sovereignty is shown in the way that he protected the disciples. His sovereignty is shown in the way that he submitted willingly to be taken. And his sovereignty is shown when Peter denied him because he prophesied it would happen. Even in these passages, Christ is glorified. So next time you think about Peter, and you think about him denying, it's okay to say he was wrong. But take it back to Christ. Take it back to the reason why it's in there. To remind us that Christ is who he said he was. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is God, while he was man as well. And we thank you that because of that, he was able to live a perfect life, that there was no one who could bring an accusation against him that was true. We thank you that he was able to do the miracles. He was able to give the prophecies. He was able to do everything that we read in Scripture so that we would believe. And we thank you that even as we're about to remember what he did for us on the cross, that he did that, that he instituted this Lord's Supper, that he gave us a way to remember what he has done for us. I pray that it would be that as we go to the table this morning, that we would remember Jesus Christ, that we would remember our, our fallen state, that we would remember 
what he has saved us from and that we would be grateful for it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.